0: Well, this morning's reading comes from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of the biggest uh, books of prophecy in the Old Testament. And uh, it may be familiar to a lot of you. Uh, Jeremiah is important for a lot of reasons, but we love especially to have our young people hear from Jeremiah because we we trot it out at things like graduations and confirmation ceremonies Um, because Jeremiah was just a boy when he was called by God to prophesy. We, we think scholars have placed him at about age 16 when he was called. And like the, the n- nice young man, the good boy that he was raised to be, when God called him, he turned to God and said very politely, uh, no thank you. I don't think I want that job. <laughs> what he actually said was, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. To which God, the creator of the universe, the almighty one, said in a nutshell, don't worry, I got you. God said, I will place the words in your mouth. I will be with you every step of the way. So Jeremiah began his, his prophecy work right then and there with God by his side, with him always, and he was a prophet to the people of Israel for his entire life a period that spanned invasions by Assyria, exile to Babylon, the reign of multiple kings, many of whom did evil in the sight of the Lord, we're told over and over again. But Jeremiah's chief message to the people during his entire lifetime was laser-focused. It was, turn away from idols and remember your God kind of like a business consultant that we hire to come into our businesses and institutions and organizations to kind of shake up the status quo, Jeremiah was called by God to disrupt business as usual in Judah. And business as usual had become idolatry and incorporating evil practices into the worship. You see, during one of the many invasions by Assyria, the Israelites began to worship Assyrian gods. They still worshiped Yahweh, but alongside Yahweh, they began to incorporate Baal and Asherah along the way. And there's a photo of them here, just so you can see kind of, you know, who these, uh, these graven images, as we might call them, were. Uh, Baal was widely worshipped in the ancient Near East. He was the storm king god. So he was in charge of making sure that it rained or didn't rain. So he was the one that they worshipped because um, he was responsible for the crops that fed the people. And Baal was closely associated with Asherah, who was considered the god of fertility. So these are the gods being worshipped all around, you know, in the ancient times. And the Israelites had sort of intermingled their worship, if you will, um, and they were beginning to worship both of, of these gods along with Yahweh. They even moved their altar in the temple to make room for these guys' altars, and they completely stopped paying attention to the book of Moses, to the law of God, the covenant. So Jeremiah begins to warn them on behalf of God. He says, the entire city will be burned to the ground by the Babylonians, if you keep this up. He says Zion will be flattened. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, he tells them. He warns them that they're going to be taken into exile. But, he says, if the people will just return to God, God will keep them from harm and prevent all of the terrible things from happening. Jeremiah is trying desperately to warn them. He says, you have as many false gods as you have towns. You burn incense and put up altars to these so-called gods who are never going to be there for you when it really matters. He says, don't place your trust in them. Turn away from them. You have forgotten who you are and whose you are. Turn away from all that. He says, do justice Care for the oppressed. This is the path that God chooses for you, Jeremiah tells them. The path of Moses and Abraham, the ancient path, Jeremiah calls it. In the New Testament, Jesus would call it more the narrow path, the narrow gate. Wide is the gate, Jesus said, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Jesus says that in the gospel of Matthew. In other words, one path leads to suffering and one path leads to life. So some of us might be experiencing our own paths of pain this morning. Maybe you're in a season right now that is challenging and hard. But here's what I want us to know this morning. When God told Jeremiah to speak to the people. He said, tell them they're headed down the wrong path. Warn them that this is not going to go well for anybody, but make sure they know this. At one moment, he says, I may declare to a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, but if that nation turns from evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. I will change my mind. Isn't that music to your ears? You may be headed in completely the wrong direction in life. You might have done things that you're ashamed of, things that you think you can't turn around or you don't know how to. You may have strayed so far from God that you aren't even sure how to get back. And still God says, here's a second chance. When I um, first met my husband, he was a potter. It was just a hobby. It was a fun outlet when he was in college. And we still have some of the pieces around the house that he threw then. But I remember whenever he would have a design in mind and he would start working on it, if it didn't come out just quite right like he imagined it, it was just so easy to start over. He could just pick up that lump of clay, toss it back down on the wheel, and smash it up and begin again. Well, that's what God is telling us this morning in our reading, that God is always willing to just remold the clay of human beings. God says, just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. If you become spoiled in my hand, God says, I will rework you into something new. Now, God is speaking directly to the people of Israel, the nation of Israel here. The message is for a nation so far gone that it's forgotten itself. But isn't it also for us? Because what is a nation, if not a bounded territory of earthen clay, made up of you and me, of people, of citizens? Individual lives make up the greater whole, of every nation, individuals living under the same roof, in the same communities, in cities big and small, individuals governing, ruling, decision-making, helping, thwarting, individuals creating, destroying, including, excluding, loving, hating. The message of God to Israel was a message straight into the hearts of every person. And the message was this, what you do matters. What you do matters, acknowledge your sin. In the case of the Israelites, their sin was idolatry and the oppression of people, treating people as less than human. How ironic, since these were the very people that God had rescued from oppression themselves. How often do we do that in our lives? How often has it happened over history that human beings continue to oppress other human beings? It's painful to admit sometimes how often it's happened and how we do it still. So God says, repent from your sin, depart from it, turn back to me and I will make you into a new thing. And you know what? God can do that in an instant. God can make that change happen suddenly. You may not see a way out. You might feel so frustrated, scared. You've lost hope. But God can turn this thing around so suddenly it will make our heads spin. Suddenly there appeared a multitude of angels in the sky singing glory to God in the highest. Suddenly, there came the sound like the rush of a violent wind and it filled an entire house. We heard this about the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. When Paul was imprisoned, shackled and chained in a tomb of a cell, suddenly the foundations of the earth shook and the chains were loosened and the doors flung open. Freedom. Moses stretched out his hands and suddenly... The Red Sea parted. Suddenly, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Suddenly, God can change his mind and make you into a new thing. It can happen like that. But being shaped and reshaped is not easy. Being smashed back down for another turn on the potter's wheel is not everyone's idea of an easier good time, probably because it requires us to become something other than we are currently being. It requires us to be our true selves, vulnerable, open, laid bare to the creator of the universe, and not everyone is willing to risk that kind of enormous transforming change. In Jeremiah, after he's warned the people, we hear the story about a a long conversation that he has with the king of Judah. King Zedekiah had kind of a warrior mentality. He was one of the people that Jeremiah was talking about when he was urging them to turn back to God. But Zedekiah does his own thing. He even goes so far as to call on Jeremiah and ask his advice. And he says to him, you know, what does God want from me? He's scared at this point in his, in his uh, reignship. And he, he asks Jeremiah, um, will God be with me in this battle if I go against them? And Jeremiah says, look, if you will just surrender to the king of Babylon, don't go into that battle your life, and the life of the city of Jerusalem will be spared. Think about that. God is saying, after all you've done, Zedekiah, after all the idolatry, after all the oppression, after all the evil and the bloodshed, I will save you now if you will just turn back to me. Listen to me. Follow my ways. It's not too late, God says. Surrender. But Zedekiah does not surrender. He goes into battle. The entire city is destroyed. His family is killed before his very eyes. The temple is ransacked and burned to the ground. And all of Judah is exiled. Why is it so hard for us to just surrender? In Zedekiah's case, I think his fear played a big role. He was afraid of the Egyptians. He was afraid of the Babylonians. He was afraid for his life, and he placed his trust in the wrong things. I think our pride keeps us from surrendering. We're afraid we won't look good in a certain situation. We won't look like we know what we're doing or that we've lost control, as if we ever had it to begin with. Arrogance keeps us from surrendering. I have my very smart brain telling me what to do, so I don't need God. I have my background, my experiences, my past successes, and my opinions, thank you very much. Those will guide me. So many things keep us from surrendering. We'd rather stick with what we know, a misshapen clay vessel, than to allow God to throw us back on the wheel and make us into something new. God is the God of second chances, though, and new beginnings. God is more willing to forgive us than we are to forgive ourselves because God's love for us is so vast, we can't even begin to comprehend it. When the Israelites were defeated and being carried off into exile, God told Jeremiah, say to them, be strong, be patient, stay in faith, stay in hope, because God said, I know the plans that I have for you. I have plans for you to prosper, plans that will not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God knows what our future holds, and God will do everything to bring it into being. We might sabotage it with our stubborn will like Zedekiah, but if we turn away from sin, God will change his mind. There are consequences for sin, consequences for our actions, of course, always. God's grace costs us something. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who coincidentally, if you believe in coincidence, Miha saying sang the beautiful words from his poem today, just as I chose this this morning from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But but Bonhoeffer um, calls that kind of cost to God's grace costly grace. He says that the costly grace is the gospel the good news, and it's costly because it requires us to follow Jesus, and we don't know where that might lead. It costs us our own comfortable self-reliance, and it asks us to let go and let God, to trust in the amazing plans that God already has laid out for us. This is the entire message of the book of Jeremiah. And it's also the dominant message of the Bible, from beginning to end, grace, second chances. Even after everything the Israelites did, God slapped the clay back down and made something new. Because I know the plans I have for you, God said. And God's plan was this, that he would make us a promise, not a new law to follow, but the promise of transformation. God said, I will put my law in their minds, and I will inscribe it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And, God said, I will forgive and forget their sins. How God did this was by sending Jesus, who taught us how to internalize that gospel message, that good news of what a life can look like when it's transformed from the inside out. Jesus taught us how to access that message that's inscribed on our hearts, the message of love and redemption and second chances. Jesus taught us that the worst thing is never the last thing. There is always hope. You can always begin again. Jesus taught us that God has plans we can't begin to fathom or understand, and that God will make a way to set all things right. That's grace. That's a second chance. Always and forever, there is nowhere we can go that God is not. There is nothing we can do that God won't forgive. God is relentless in calling us back to him, And like the clay in a potter's hand, we can be reshaped. Amen. And I invite us now to just a moment of silent reflection as we, each of us, calls to mind those places in our own lives that we may need to turn around. Sin being that which has not hit its mark. Where are we missing the mark? of what God is calling us to in this world. So I invite us to reflect on that for a moment before our prayers of the people.